You are listening to the August 2023 issue of The Postal Record, the magazine of the National Association of Letter Carriers. This is NALC President Brian Renfro, and this is my president's message for the August 2023 Postal Record entitled, Safety and Health are Paramount. Safety and health are more important than anything else. This statement is true in all aspects of life. It holds particularly true when talking about workers. As a union, one of our top priorities is and always will be the safety and health of the members we are privileged to represent. There are two hazards that currently pose the biggest threats to the safety and health of letter carriers. The growing wave of violent crimes against our members, and as we enter the hottest time of the year, heat safety. As we continue to have productive talks and collective bargaining with our counterparts at USPS headquarters, we remain focused on doing all we can at the headquarters level, as well as across the country, to address these two hazards. In the last few days leading up to penning this article, I have seen multiple videos of letter carriers being robbed and attacked. It is heartbreaking and appalling. Violence against our members cannot and will not be tolerated, and NELC remains committed to doing everything possible to stop these crimes. There are a number of areas where we can and will make improvements to help stop this violence. We have been in constant communication with the leadership at the Postal Service and in Congress to encourage and jumpstart a few improvements. First, USPS continues testing alternatives for our airlock system that utilizes technology to increase the security of our methods for opening collection boxes. I won't get into the details at this point for safety and security reasons, but the tests are promising, and I anticipate seeing replacement of airlocks and keys in the relatively near future. Second, prosecution rates for crimes against letter carriers is low. This is unacceptable. Besides simply being the right thing to do and consistent with the principle of justice that our country was founded on, the reality the prosecution must act as a deterrent to violent criminals who target letter carriers. Criminals are less likely to commit crime when they know they will face severe consequences. We can no longer tolerate the low rate of prosecution by the Department of Justice. I applaud the leadership at the Postal Service for recently investing in resources to increase prosecutions, but more is needed. We are engaged with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle in both the House of Representatives and the Senate on legislation that will provide an additional push. We will do what we always do, make our voice heard by every elected representative. We also continue our now decade-long fight to protect our members from the hazards posed by excessive heat. It is a scientific fact that temperatures are going up over time, and thus this hazard continues to grow. Too many of our members have suffered injury or lost their lives as a result of heat-related illness. One outcome of this fight in the legal and collective bargaining arenas was the creation of the Postal Service Heat Illness Prevention Program a few years ago. The HIP requires training to be conducted for all supervisors and letter carriers by April 1st each year. We are currently surveying the country to determine where this training was and wasn't conducted. Please communicate with your National Business Agent's office to let them know whether the training was or wasn't conducted in your work location. This information will assist us in dealing with the issue with our counterparts at USPS headquarters. The immediate step we all can take to protect ourselves to become familiar with warning signs of heat stress. NALC has put together a wealth of information regarding heat safety on our website at NALC.org. We are working on additional ways to get this information to NALC members. Heat stress can come on quickly. 
Those suffering often do not realize they are in danger until they have become ill or suffered further injury. I encourage everyone to familiarize themselves with the warning signs and to share this knowledge with our brothers and sisters. This information can save lives. I'd like to end this month's message with a note of gratitude. Some of you may know that I sought treatment for alcoholism a few months ago, a disease I have struggled with sporadically over the last several years. While stepping away from our union's work for a short time to seek help was one of the most difficult decisions I have ever made, I deeply appreciate everyone who kept up our union's work during my absence. To those who sent words of support or offered a thought or prayer on my behalf, I sincerely thank you. I am happy to report that I am healthy and more excited than ever to continue our work together to achieve results for you, the members of NALC. I openly share my story with NALC members for one primary reason. If you or someone you know struggles with substance abuse, please reach out for help. For those afflicted by the disease of substance abuse, treatment is vital to one's safety and health, and it's available no matter who or where you are. Your only regret will be not seeking assistance earlier. News from Washington. On June 21st, in an 11 to 10 party line vote, the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions advanced the Richard L. Trumka Protecting the Right to Organize Act, or PRO Act, of 2023, Senate Bill 567. The PRO Act would expand collective bargaining rights for workers and make it easier to join unions. This is the first Senate markup for the PRO Act, which passed in the House in the previous two Congresses. Workers in America have the constitutional right to assemble and form a union, Chairman Bernie Sanders, Independent Vermont, said in his opening statement. Over the last many decades, corporate interests have done everything that they can to make it impossible for workers to exercise that right. We will be dealing with that issue today. During the markup, ranking member Bill Cassidy, Republican Louisiana, who led the Republican opposition to the bill, expressed frustration with what he called a partisan markup on the controversial legislation. The committee is known for considering issues that are of interest to both the majority and the minority, and the last time the committee considered legislation that did not have at least some support from both sides of the aisle was the Affordable Care Act in 2009. At the June markup, Republican senators introduced three dozen amendments, all of which were rejected. The amendments including banning remote voting in union elections, prohibiting undocumented workers from joining unions, protecting right-to-work laws, and more. The next step is for the full Senate to consider the legislation. The bill is not expected to receive the 60 votes needed to clear the Senate filibuster. Two other bills advanced in party-line votes at the markup. The Healthy Families Act, Senate Bill 1664, which would guarantee that all workers receive at least seven paid sick days from their employer, and the Paycheck Fairness Act, Senate Bill 728, which would address the gender wage gap by making it easier for women to collectively file and win lawsuits against employers who discriminate with wages. These bills are also not expected to reach the 60 votes needed to clear the Senate filibuster. Supreme Court Rules on Religious Accommodation on June 29th, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its ruling in Groff v. DeJoy, in which a former rural letter carrier sued the Postal Service for failing to accommodate his request to not be assigned work on Sundays because of his religious beliefs. NALC, along with the National Rural Letter Carriers Association and the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, filed a joint brief in this case that emphasized the practical difficulties posed by Gerald Groff's request in light of chronic understaffing in the post office where he worked and the potential adverse impact of Groff's request on his fellow employees. 
The unions argued that the Supreme Court should remand the case to lower courts for consideration of these factors. The Supreme Court's decision clarified employers' obligation to accommodate an employee's request for religious accommodation under Title VII of the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Postal Service is covered by this statute. Under Title VII, such accommodation is required unless the accommodation would impose an, quote, undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. The Supreme Court defined undue hardship to refer to substantial increased cost and ruled that the test must be applied in a manner that takes into account all relevant factors. The Supreme Court ultimately remanded the case to the lower courts to apply this test to the facts of the case, as suggested in the union's joint brief. NALC members will be apprised of any effects this decision on the city letter carrier craft as the judicial process continues in the lower courts. Doherty and Donalon Scholarships Awarded Six Children of NALC Members to Receive Funding for College Six children of NALC members will receive NALC Memorial Scholarships in recognition of their academic achievements and community involvement. One student from each of the five geographical regions was awarded $4,000 apiece from the William C. Doherty Scholarship Fund, and a sixth student will receive $1,000 from the John T. Donalon Scholarship. All six scholarships are renewable for three additional years. The Doherty Scholarship was founded in 1962 to honor William Doherty, NALC's president from 1941 to 1962. The winners for 2023 are Central Region, Ella Martin. Parent, Jeremy Martin, Royal Oak, Michigan, Branch 3126. Quote, My grandfather has been the most influential person in my life. He always told me that the measurement of a good leader is someone who uses their talents to help others become better. This has helped mold me into a strong student and athlete. It has also made me into a person who enjoys helping others become better students and athletes. I know why I enjoy tutoring and babysitting so much. Each time I help a student struggling with math, I am so happy to see them light up when they understand what I have taught them. Eastern Region, Lauren Soto, Parent, Steve Soto, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Branch 254. Quote, the idea of having a platform and using it for good is what I feel passionate about most of all. In whatever form that may come, I'll take it. I don't doubt that not everything I hope will come true or even be easy, but as long as I have helped others, even just one person, that means more than anything else. Northeast Region, Jacob Langill. Parent, Jason Langill. Providence, Rhode Island, Branch 15. Quote, without a doubt, being a member of the Boy Scouts of America has contributed most to my development. Scouting has enabled me to experience so much, develop my love for nature and camping, and acted as a doorway for me to learn new things. Southern Region, Katie Chen. Parent, Wei Chung Chen, South Florida Branch 1071, Branch 1071. Quote, the first person who has been influential in my life is my grandma. She immigrated to the United States with little knowledge of English, three young children, and the bags in her hands. Even with this little, she was able to work three jobs at a time to provide support for her family. When I was born, she retired early to take care of me while my parents worked. Because of her, I am able to be the person I am today. She has taken me to school, picked me up from my volunteering, and cooked meals to fill my stomach. She is a constant reminder to me of strength and endurance. Western Region Alta Crane, Parent, Michael Hayes, Salt Lake City, Utah, Branch 111. Quote, If I had not gone through the heartbreak of losing a good friend recently to a murder-suicide event, I don't think I would have felt as strong of an urge to do something to help others in a time of despair. 
The experience pushed me to get creative and use my resources to support others and initiate things that can help others, like setting up assemblies with mental support speakers and post-crisis resources around the school. It has motivated me to be a more compassionate person and motivated me to make a real change. A scholarship honoring the late John T. Donilon, longtime assistant to three NALC presidents, was announced in 2003. Donilon's wife, Louise, established the Donilon Scholarship as a bequest in her will. The winner is Ira Woodfalk II, parent Ira Woodfalk, Pensacola, Florida, Branch 321. Quote, I found children to be the best part of my job at Winterfest, Pensacola. I played the role of the mayor of Whoville from the Grinch. I always tried to find out something about the kids on the trolley and then use that information to make the kids feel they were special. Their eyes would light up and they would leave smiling from ear to ear. The NALC Scholarship Committee met in mid-May at NALC headquarters in Washington, D.C. The committee is composed of Lawrence Kenia of Buffalo Western New York Branch 3, Chair, Kimetra Lewis of Dallas, Texas, Branch 132, and Carly A. Hook of Santa Clara, California, Branch 1427. The committee reviewed and evaluated each application. The committee released the following report. This year marks 59 years of the William C. Doherty Scholarship Program and 19 years of the John T. Donilon Scholarship. From the original grant of six scholarships in the amount of $500 per year in 1964, the Doherty Program grew to 15 scholarships at $800 per year, each for a total of $3,200 per scholarship. The Doherty Scholarship has changed to provide for five scholarships, with an increase in the amount of $4,000 per year for a total of $16,000 per scholarship. The Donilon Scholarship provides for one scholarship in the amount of $1,000 per year for a total of $4,000 per scholarship. The Doherty Scholarship Program of the National Association of Letter Carriers was authorized by the 43rd Biennial Convention meeting in 1962 in Denver, Colorado. The program was named after President William C. Doherty, who retired at the 1962 convention after serving 21 years as the national president. Past President Doherty died on August 9, 1987. The John T. Donilon Scholarship Program was established in 2003. Donilon was assistant to three NALC presidents and died in 1985. His widow ensured that his wishes to donate the NALC scholarship program were carried out upon her passing. While state associations, branches, auxiliaries, and individual members contributed to the Doherty Fund in its early days, its first important financing resulted from a dinner the union sponsored on October 23, 1963, commemorating the centennial of free delivery service in the United States. Over the years since its establishment, every segment of our membership has been generous in supporting the program. Our committee commends President Renfro and the NALC Executive Council, as well as preceding presidents and councils, for the progressive thinking that has resulted in educational opportunities for the children of our membership. With this report, we are pleased to announce that since its inception, more than 600 children of letter carriers have been scholarship recipients. To be in a position, as NALC is, to make it possible to assist these bright young students in their academic career is in itself a source of satisfaction. Every letter carrier should know that many past winners have graduated early with high honors and that most of our winners have completed their undergraduate work and, in many cases, have gone on to pursue postgraduate work. No person connected with NALC, neither among the executive council nor the committee, has a voice in the final determination of the ultimate winners. These are done by college administrators from the Washington, D.C. area. 
We are grateful for the continued service of Dr. Georgia Booker, retired director for Guidance Counseling Services, District of Columbia Public Schools, James B. Massey, Jr., Director, Office of Undergraduate Admissions, University of Maryland, and Mr. Dale E. Bittinger, Assistant Vice Provost for Undergraduate Admissions, Orientation, and School Partnerships at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. These distinguished members of the academic profession have contributed in a great measure to the success of the program. The financial condition of the program is better than it was in 1964 when the initial awards were made. Its continuation is bolstered by the financial support of our members and friends of NALC. Contributions should be made payable to the William C. Doherty Scholarship Fund or the John T. Donilon Scholarship Fund and addressed to NALC Headquarters, 100 Indiana Ave, Northwest, Washington, D.C., 20001. Details of the fund's financial position were included in the audit report of the National Secretary-Treasurer for the biennial term ending at the Chicago Convention last year. Your scholarship committee concludes by thanking President Renfro, resident offers, and most expressly, the staff that assists for their unselfish cooperation and interest in our work. Hi, this is Michelle McQuality, Special Assistant to the President, and I'll be reading Annual Leaf Sharing Program Helps Coworkers in Need, found on page 8 of the August Postal Record. When the doctor told me I needed major surgery and was going to be off work for three months, I panicked. A member recently told the postal record she had just been converted to a part-time flexible city carrier and didn't have enough leave to cover her absence. Beyond just worrying about herself, as a single mom, she had a young son to care for, too. I had no idea how I was going to pay the bills while I was off, she said. I didn't have enough leave to cover my absence. How was I going to provide for my son? A friend told her about the annual leave sharing program and helped her consult with her shop steward to get the necessary forms. I am so grateful many of my coworkers were generous and donated their leave so I could recover without the added financial stress. I can't thank them enough, she said. This is a situation that comes up often. What if you have a medical situation or are adding a child to your family and you need to take more time off than you have sufficient leave balances to cover? Or maybe you have a coworker who's experiencing a medical situation and they have run out of leave. You want to help, but you don't know how. You might be able to donate some of your earned annual leave to them through the annual leave sharing program. This article explains the annual leave sharing program and how city carriers can take advantage of this valuable program. NALC has negotiated a Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, RE, leave sharing to assist letter carriers in these situations. The MOU, found beginning on page 180 of the National Agreement, incorporates Section 51264 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual, ELM, and requires USPS to offer the annual leave sharing program. The MOU offers city carriers the opportunity to receive and use donated annual leave, as well as the opportunity to donate their annual leave to another employee under certain conditions. To be eligible to receive donated leave, an employee must meet three criteria. First, an employee must be incapacitated for available postal duties due to a serious personal health condition or pregnancy, or must need to leave to care for a child born to or placed for adoption with the employee within the 12 months prior to taking leave. Second, they must be known to have missed or be expected to miss at least 40 or more hours from work beyond what their own annual leave and or six leave balances would cover. And third, the employee must have their absence approved pursuant to standard USPS attendance policies. As indicated above, to use donated leave, the carrier must have exhausted all of their earned leave 
and have been in a leave without pay, LWOP, status for at least 40 hours. However, donated leave may be used retroactively to cover the 40 hours of LWOP required to be eligible for leave sharing. City carriers can donate annual leave from their earned annual leave account to another postal employee within the same geographic area serviced by a postal district. In addition, postal employees may donate annual leave to other family members who are postal employees without restriction as to geographic location. Family members include son or daughter, parent and spouse, as defined in Elm Section 515.2. Individual annual leave donations must be for eight or more whole hours of annual leave that has been earned. Fractions of an hour or amounts less than eight hours may not be donated. Donations may not exceed half of the amount of annual leave earned each year based on the leave earnings category of the donor at the time of the donation. Sick leave, unearned annual leave, and annual leave hours subject to forfeiture, leave in excess of the maximum carryover that the employee would not be permitted to use before the end of the leave year, may not be donated. The program also restricts employees from donating leave to their immediate supervisors. Donated leave may be carried over from one leave year to the next without limitation. Unused donated leave remains in the recipient's account and is not restored to donors. Such residual donated leave may at any time be applied against negative leave balances caused by a medical exigency. At separation, any remaining donated leave balance will be paid in a lump sum. Prior to requesting leave donations, the recipient's eligibility must be approved and a leave sharing program, LSP file, opened by USPS. The carrier wishing to receive donated leave should submit a completed PS Form 3970R, request to receive donated leave to their immediate supervisor for processing and approval. The PS Form 3970R should be submitted as soon as possible. No need to wait until sick leave, annual leave, and or the 40 hours of LWOP are exhausted. If the carrier is unable to complete or submit PS Form 3970R to request eligibility, the form may be completed or submitted by any other person acting on the employee's behalf. If the employee wishes, a notice requesting annual leave donations will be distributed and posted in postal installations within the geographical area serviced by the district. The notice can also be provided to the local union branch and management organizations. To donate leave to an eligible recipient, a carrier complete a PS Form 3970D leave sharing program request to donate leave, authorizing the donation and indicating how much leave they would like to donate. An employee may donate additional hours to the same recipient by completing an additional PS Form 3970D. The restriction of eight or more whole hours, however, applies to each PS Form 3970D submitted. Additional guidelines for the program are found in USPS Management Instruction EL 510-2019-6, Annual Leave Sharing Program, which can be found on the NALC website under the Resources tab in the Workplace Issues section. For more information regarding the Annual Leave Sharing Program, consult with your shop steward or NALC branch officer. Letter Carriers and the Mail on Social Media Various news stories and interesting anecdotes that celebrate letter carriers and the mail have been appearing on social media. The following are some that have come to the union's attention. If you come across a story that you'd like us to consider featuring, send it to social at nalc.org. Wisconsin Town Creates a Mail Delivery Spectacle 
a long-held Wisconsin tradition involving a small shoreline town, mail delivery, and a leap off a mailboat is continuing this summer. Every year, teenagers audition to be mailboat jumpers who leap from boats to deliver mail to waterfront homes in the southeast town of Lake Geneva. The vessel does not stop at any point throughout the route. The teens must leap from the deck to the pier, drop off letters, and collect outgoing mail, and leap back onto the deck, all while the ship is in motion. This year, more than a dozen teens attended tryouts. National Public Radio, NPR, noted that mailboat jumpers are idolized, in part because the job isn't easy. Jumpers begin by sorting the mail by 7 a.m., and in the past, a few have cracked the ship's windows by getting too fast of a head start, while others have ended up in the water. Jumpers also act as tour guides to boat passengers. Because of this, jumpers are selected based not only on their athletic ability, but also by their stage presence. There's a lot of adrenaline. And, you know, some people chase the runner's high. We chase the jumper's high. 18-year-old Aaron Hensler, who jumped last year and tried out again this year, told NPR. Lake Geneva has received delivery by boat since the late 1800s, and although nowadays it is reachable by road, almost 80 residents opt for the unique method of boat delivery when it becomes an option in the summertime. For both residents and jumpers, it's a fun way to keep the tradition alive. Postal Service celebrates waterfalls with new stamps. Waterfalls are known as many things. Nature's water slides, nature's showers, nature's music, and back in June, they earned a new designation as artwork on stamps. The U.S. Postal Service held a ceremony for the first day of issue at the Canyon Visitor Education Center at Yellowstone National Park, celebrating the release of 12 new stamps, each displaying a photograph of a waterfall, its name, and the state in which it is located. They honor waterfalls from all over the country, including the lower falls of the Yellowstone River in Wyoming, which at 308 feet has a drop of almost twice the height of Niagara Falls, Grotto Falls in Tennessee, which has a hiking trail situated behind it, and Upper Falls in North Carolina, which supports the ecosystem by sending out sprays that water the surrounding plants whenever the waterfall hits the rock face. The stamps are beautiful, displaying water cascading down an array of differently colored backgrounds, red, yellow, blue, green, and in some, you can even spot a rainbow dancing on the droplets. Four women finish time at most remote post office. In April 2022, the most remote post office in the world, located in Antarctica, put out a request for applicants to reopen the building for the first time since the pandemic began, and 6,000 people responded. Among those 6,000 were Luzi Bruzzone, Claire Ballantyne, Natalie Corbett, and Mary Hilton, the eventual winners of the applicant pool. In November 2022, when they began their long, cold winter, which would last until March 2023, and included foregoing running water and flushable toilets, sharing one bedroom amongst the four of them, and showering only every few days when a ship came to the island. They also had to go without cell phone reception and internet access for five months. The post office is in Port Lockroy and is informally called the Penguin Post Office as a nod to the thousands of penguins that sit on the slopes nearby. It welcomes about 18,000 visitors every season, in part because it is a historic site that was used by whaling fleets in the early 1900s. It also was the first continuously occupied British base to establish year-round British presence in Antarctica, according to the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. It houses three buildings, Bransfield House, which includes a museum, shop, and the post office, a boat shed, and staff living quarters. Each woman had a different job to complete. Corbett's assignment was running the gift shop of the office's museum. Ballantyne handled the 80,000 cards sent from the post office each year. Hilton, a conservation biologist, was responsible for counting the Gen 2 penguins on the island. 
And Ritsone, a scientist, was tasked with managing the team and supervising ships' coming and going. Ritsone told the BBC that the expedition was, quote, a lifelong dream. Youngest carrier gets truck. Lucas Hastings, one of the Postal Service's littler fans, recently wore his letter carrier uniform during a trip to the post office. In the lobby, station manager Michael Alston spotted three-year-old Hastings and let everyone know that help had arrived, and the Washington, D.C. office, aptly named the Friendship Station, welcomed Hastings with open arms. The customer services supervisor, Myra Hart, told USPS Link, We were all inspired by Lucas. He looked so adorable and put a smile on all our faces, so we wanted to give one back to him. That wasn't Hastings' only experience as a miniature letter carrier. Two weeks later, his family were asked to come back to the post office, where he was greeted with a small USPS-licensed ride-on truck. He jumped for joy, Hart said. The staff also presented Hastings with letters to carry in his satchel. An infant during the pandemic, Lucas had become accustomed to receiving lots of packages and interacting with the letter carrier, Branch 142 member San Quan Long, on his route. Last Halloween, Hastings dressed up like a letter carrier, and he even sleeps in the uniform when his parents allow it. According to his parents, Hastings adores his gifts, especially the vehicle. He loves it. He drives it around our backyard. It is his favorite toy, his father said. He has truly developed a fascination for the mail. He is a little mailman and a little mail fan. On page 12 is Delivering for America, Letter Carrier's Involvement with USPS's 10-Year Plan. On March 23, 2021, the Postal Service announced its long-term strategic plan to stabilize mail delivery. This plan, called the Delivering for America Plan, involves the reorganization of the Postal Service's processing, transportation, and delivery networks. Under the plan, USPS intends to reverse an estimated $160 billion loss over the next 10 years. To accomplish this, the Postal Service has listed five objectives to realize these cost savings. The first objective is to modernize the Postal Service and make it capable of providing world-class service at affordable prices. The second objective is to maintain universal six-day mail delivery and expand seven-day package delivery. The third is to stabilize the workforce and invest in strategies to empower employees and put them in a position to succeed. The fourth is to grow revenue through innovation and meet the changing needs of the marketplace. The last piece of the plan is to become financially stable so that the universal service mandate is met. USPS leadership has highlighted the realizations of goals from the first two years of the plan, many that couldn't have been done without letter carrier involvement. The largest accomplishment came from the Postal Reform Act that became law last year, reducing the red ink caused by the mandate to pre-fund retiree health benefits decades into the future. Additionally, USPS instituted an executive leadership team reorganization, and it's in the process of updating and electrifying the postal delivery fleet. USPS also is modernizing its delivery and processing network. It has dedicated $7.6 billion to build a modernized postal network, which is one of the areas where letter carriers already are seeing the biggest changes. Part of this plan includes the creation of large delivery units called Sorting and Delivery Centers, S&DCs, across the country. The establishment of these S&DCs involves moving city letter carriers and their assignments from their current work location to larger facilities, most of them located in former processing plants. Initially, the Postal Service selects markets where there is thought to be potential growth in package delivery. Under the plan, 
USPS intends to use three strategies regarding the parcel delivery market. One is to expand local access for same and next day delivery. Another is to improve ground delivery in one and two day package delivery. The third is to move first class package delivery to an expanded ground network to help reduce the reliance on air transportation. Overall, the Postal Service maintains that reducing the number of steps between collection and delivery from the current number of 11 down to 5 will help grow parcel volume. When the SNDCs are created, the Postal Service remodels the buildings so that each facility is structured the same as the others. Letter carriers working in the SNDCs will see renovations that include remodeled bathrooms with new fixtures, new water fountains that include bottle fillers, and remodeled break rooms with ice machines. Each SNDC also receives new carrier cases, which are blue instead of the traditional green case. All of the SNDCs also are equipped with a package sorting machine called a Small Delivery Unit Sorter, SDUS, which can sort parcels by carrier route. Whenever full-time letter carrier assignments and letter carriers are moved from one office or installation to another, the contractual provisions covering the movement depend on the circumstances. There are three scenarios in which letter carriers and assignments are moved when an SNDC is established. The first occurs when all of the assignments in the city letter carrier craft are moved from an independent or losing installation to the SNDC. The retail and PO box operations remain under a postmaster in the losing installation. This means that the losing installation is not being discontinued or consolidated under this process, since it remains an independent installation, which is separate from the SNDC. The second one involves a delivery unit being moved from the jurisdiction of an independent installation to the SNDC. This can happen only when the office being moved is part of an installation with multiple delivery units. Under this scenario, the other delivery units within the original installation remain and do not move. Under the first two circumstances, the provisions of Article 12 of the National Agreement apply and must be followed. These provisions cover the movement of city letter carrier assignments and or city letter carriers from one installation to the jurisdiction of another. Which section of Article 12 governs the movement depends on what happens in the losing installation. If the losing installation is being discontinued, meaning that no USPS operations will remain in the building, then the provisions of Article 12, Section 5.C.1 would apply. As described above under the first scenario, only the delivery routes are being moved into the SNDC, while other operations will remain. This means that in most circumstances, Article 12, Section 5.C.1 would not apply. However, if the Postal Service decided to end operations in the original installation, this section would be used to move the letter carriers and their assignments. If the losing installation is being consolidated, meaning that the office will become part of another installation, then Article 12, Section 5.C.2 applies. When this happens, the routes could either remain in their current location or move to a different office within the gaining installation. Under the SNDC model, the losing installations are remaining independent from the SNDC and not becoming a part of a different installation. Again, this section of Article 12 would apply only in circumstances where USPS decides to consolidate the losing installation with the SNDC. If this happens, the losing installation would no longer be an independent installation with its own postmaster. The provisions of Article 12, Section 5.C.3 cover circumstances where a delivery unit is moved from the jurisdiction of one installation into the SNDC. This is the section of Article 12 that has been used so far in the establishment of the current SNDCs. When this happens, the full-time letter carriers have the option of either moving to the SNDC with their assignment or vacating the assignment and remaining in the original installation. If a letter carrier decides to remain on their assignment, they would be moved into the SNDC without the loss of their seniority. Letter carriers who voluntarily move to the SNDC would no longer be part of the losing installation, so they would not have the right to bid on assignments that become vacant in the original installation after the movement to the SNDC. Assignments that become vacant due to letter carriers selecting to remain in the original installation are then posted or bid. 
Only those full-time letter carriers assigned to the losing installation are eligible to bid on the vacant assignments moving to the SNDC. Letter carriers already assigned to the SNDC or those moving from other installations do not have the right to bid on these vacancies. If no one bids on the vacant assignments and they become residual vacancies, full-time letter carriers in the losing installation could be involuntarily reassigned or accessed to the SNDC to fill these vacancies. If it becomes necessary to excess letter carriers to fill the vacancies, this is done by involuntarily reassigning a sufficient number of full-time letter carriers to fill the residual assignments. Excessing is done by juniority, even if this means removing a full-time letter carrier from their bid assignment and accessing them to the SNDC. The only exception to this rule involves those letter carriers serving as shop stewards. In accordance with Article 17, Section 3, letter carriers serving as shop stewards may not be involuntarily reassigned. If the shop steward would have been the employee to be accessed because of juniority, he or she would be bypassed and the next senior full-time letter carrier would instead be involuntarily reassigned. If the shop steward is the only full-time letter carrier who could be accessed, then the steward would be the person who is involuntarily reassigned to the SNDC. Letter carriers who are accessed have the right to return to the losing installation once a residual vacancy occurs. This right known as a voluntary retreat right, is offered to all of the letter carriers accessed from the losing installation to the SNDC. If more than one letter carrier was accessed, retreat rights are offered by seniority. These retreat rights are active until a letter carrier turns down the opportunity to return to a residual vacancy in the losing installation. With one exception, if a letter carrier was occupying a carrier technician assignment prior to being accessed, they can turn down the right to retreat to a city carrier assignment. They would lose their retreat rights only if they turned down the opportunity to return to the original installation to fill a residual carrier technician assignment. Letter carriers who decide to vacate their assignments and remain in the losing installation would become unassigned full-time regular letter carriers who could then bid on vacant assignments within the original installation or be assigned to residual vacancies under the provisions of Article 41, Section 1.A.7. If a letter carrier who vacated their assignment to remain in the losing installation is one of the junior full-time employees in the original installation, they could be accessed to the SNDC under the rules described above. Letter carriers who are part of delivery units being moved from the jurisdiction of one installation into an SNDC under the provisions of Article 12, Section 5.C.3 should be aware of two things. If they decide to move to the SNDC, the only way they could return to the losing installation would be to request a voluntary transfer or mutual exchange. Letter carriers who are moved into the SNDC on an involuntary basis would have retreat rights back to the original installation if residual assignments become available. In addition to Article 12, the National Agreement contains various memorandums of understanding, MOUs, related to delivery unit optimization, DUO. Under the DUO process, all city letter carrier assignments were moved from a losing to a gaining installation. Under DUO, the losing installation remains independent. While the movement of assignments under DUO is identical to the transfer of jobs into an SNDC, the DUO agreement did not address issues such as city carrier assistant relative standing or process to evaluate routes, both before and after the movement of the assignments. Because of this, NELC and USPS negotiated two new agreements to address these concerns when assignments are moved into an SNDC. The first agreement, MOU, Re-Movement of City Letter Carrier Assignments from an Independent Installation to a Sorting and Delivery Center, M01990, outlines the process for moving the assignments while dealing with the issues left out of the duo agreements. The second one, MOU Re Local Memorandums of Understanding due to the establishment of a sorting and delivery center, M01991, outlines the process for addressing the local memorandums of understanding, LMOU, from each of the installations involved in the establishment of an SNDC. 
Copies of both documents are available in the Materials Reference System, MRS, on the NELC website at nelc.org MRS. The third scenario under which an SNDC could be implemented involves the Postal Service combining delivery units within an installation into one building. Under these circumstances, neither Article 12 nor the SNDC agreements govern the movement of assignments and letter carriers. Since the letter carriers were already assigned to the installation, there are no changes to seniority or bid assignments. There are also no changes to the LMOU since these agreements cover the entire installation. Any provisions in the LMOU that identify specific sections, such as the administration of the overtime desired list, remain in effect until a new LMOU is negotiated following the ratification of a new national agreement. Currently, 11 SNDCs are in operation around the country. The first facility, located in Athens, Georgia, opened in November of last year. Though there are city carrier assignments in Athens, only rural carrier routes were moved into the SNDC. The city carriers working in Athens were all working in this building before the SNDC was implemented. On February 25th, five additional SNDCs began operation in Gainesville, Florida, Panama City, Florida, Bryan, Texas, Utica, New York, and Woburn, Massachusetts. When these SNDCs were established, there were a variety of methods used to move the letter carriers and assignments. In Gainesville, the only city carriers moved were already working in the Gainesville installation. In Panama City, some letter carriers were moved within the installation and an entire separate installation, Wind Haven, Florida, was moved into the SNDC. In Bryan, Utica, and Woburn, only letter carriers from other installations were moved into the SNDC. On June 3rd, the Postal Service established SNDCs in Pasco, Washington, Topeka, Kansas, Hanover Park, Illinois, Kokomo, Indiana, and Annapolis, Maryland. In Pasco and Kokomo, city carriers from other installations were moved into the SNDCs, so the movement was governed by M01990 and M01991. In Topeka and Annapolis, all of the carriers moved into the facility were already assigned to the respective installations. The Hanover Park SNDC was the first circumstance where city carriers were moved under Article 12, Section 5.C.3, when one delivery unit in Elgin, Illinois, was moved into the facility. Two other facilities were designated as SNDCs on June 3rd, one in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and one in Owensboro, Kentucky. Although these facilities were designated as SNDCs, no letter carriers were moved into these facilities because the Postal Service determined that it was not fiscally advantageous to move any installations into these facilities. On September 9, 2023, USPS plans to establish SNDCs in Waco, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia, Palo Alto, and Chula Vista, California, Terre Haute, Indiana, and Huntington Station, and Mid-Hudson, New York. In Atlanta, the Postal Service will create two SNDCs, and in both cases, all of the letter carriers being moved into the facilities already work in the Atlanta installation. The same is true for the Waco and Terre Haute SNDCs, where no letter carriers from outside of the installation are being moved in September. In Huntington Station, Mid-Hudson, and Chula Vista, only city carriers from outside of the installation are being moved into the respective SNDCs. In Palo Alto, the Encinal Station, which is part of the Sunnyvale, California installation, is being moved, so this will be governed by Article 12, Section 5.C.3. In addition to the SNDC model for mail and package delivery, USPS will be transforming the processing network and creating large-scale centers to sort incoming and outgoing mail. While the impact of these large centers, called the Regional Processing and Distribution Centers, RPDCs, and Local Processing Centers, LPCs, will mainly affect employees in the clerk, maintenance, and mail handler crafts, wetter carriers will begin to see changes in how mail is sorted and transported to delivery units. 
NEOC continues to meet with the Postal Service on a regular basis regarding the Delivering for America plan and the progress of its implementation. These discussions include the status of SNDC implementation and the impact on the city letter carrier craft. As more information about the SNDC project becomes available, we will update the membership either on the NEOC website or in future postal record articles. On page 17 is Proud to Serve, Honoring Heroic Carriers. Heroism, like the mail, comes in many packages. Think of police officers or firefighters. But for some citizens in need of assistance, their heroes come in the form of concerned letter carriers. Letter carriers are members of nearly every community in this nation and know when something is wrong. Spotting fires and injuries, they often are the first to respond. The following stories document their heroism. For them, delivering for America is all in a day's work. Vet rushes to help gunshot victim. With only a few stops left on his route, T6, Roosevelt Knight, noticed a couple he knew from his route getting into an argument on an April afternoon. I saw this young lady arguing with her boyfriend, he said. The North Florida Branch 53 member who joined the Postal Service in 2005 after 23 years in the Army didn't think much of it. Then I heard a gunshot, he said. Why did you shoot me? He heard the woman say. Knight, whose Army service included combat experience in Iraq, Bosnia, Somalia, and Honduras, and who also was certified as an emergency medical technician, EMT, rushed to aid the woman. Meanwhile, the boyfriend, in shock at what he had done, tried to help too. Knight urged the boyfriend to move aside. He was out of it, he said. The carrier called 911 and immediately elevated the woman's legs so her blood would flow to her head and vital organs. He used one of his shirts to put pressure on the wound and slow the bleeding as he spoke to the woman, trying to keep her awake. She was in and out of consciousness, he said. When she had trouble breathing and appeared to be vomiting, he turned her sideways. He checked for an exit wound in her back in case she was bleeding from there too, but found none. Emergency responders soon arrived and took her to a hospital. Knight stayed to tell police what he had witnessed. The boyfriend was arrested. Unfortunately, the woman later died, but not before Knight had done all he could to save her. Knight has helped people in medical distress on his route before, including some suffering from apparent heat exhaustion and convulsions. Knight didn't even mention the incident when he returned to the post office. The regular carrier on that route heard about it from his customers. It's not like it was something to brag about when I went to the station, he said. After many years of combat, Knight took it in stride, though he of course wishes he could have saved the woman's life. I think about it every day, he said. Neighborhood Watch On a chilly February day, Joe Gansky was walking his route, approaching a home where he knew that two young girls lived. Gansky, a member of Springfield, Illinois, Branch 80, spotted one of the girls leaving the back gate. She took off running, across the street, he said. Knowing that she was too young to be out alone, Gansky knocked on the door and alerted the girl's father. He grabbed his shoes and coat and ran off to find her, Gansky said. The father soon found the girl safe nearby. You may feel like it was a small thing, knocking on our door and asking about our daughter when you saw something out of the ordinary, the girl's family wrote in a thank you note to Gansky. But if you had not made that choice, I don't know how long it could have been before I knew she had left. Gansky was humble about it. I would think anybody else would have done the same thing, he said. As a former police officer, Eden, North Carolina, Branch 3712 member Joseph Edwards is used to keeping an eye out for people in need. Driving his LLV on his route last spring, the city carrier assistant, who started carrying the mail in August of 2022, spotted a man holding a dog on a leash. The man was in obvious distress. You could tell he was in pain, Edwards said, and his dog was going crazy. Edwards carefully parked his vehicle and went to help the man who said he had been out walking his dog when he began experiencing severe back pain. Edwards helped the man stay upright and held his dog, then called 911 and the man's wife. When emergency responders arrived, they asked Edwards to help put the man on a stretcher. His wife arrived and took the dog. When Edwards encountered the thankful man again with his dog, he knew he had recovered. I still keep in contact with him, Edwards said, and make sure he's okay.
Union Plus has awarded scholarships to six children of NALC members. A program founded by the AFL-CIO to provide benefits to union members and their families, Union Plus has awarded scholarships each year to union members or members of their families since 1992. This year, Union Plus awarded $200,000 in scholarships to 205 students representing 41 unions. Claudia Elliott of Jasper, Alabama, was awarded a $525 scholarship. Her father, Brian Elliott, is a member of Jasper Branch 3099. Elliott plans to study sociology and psychology in college. Growing up under the influence of the NALC and the labor movement taught me the importance of hard work, communication, appreciation, and preservation of the past, Elliott wrote in her application. My father has worked for the post office since before I was born, and I have always seen how important hard work is to him through this. Another thing that growing up under the influence of the NALC and the labor movement has done for me is shown me the importance of appreciating and preserving the past in the process of working to improve the future, she wrote. Union Plus awarded Sierra Hartema of Clear Lake, Iowa, a $750 scholarship. Hartema's mother is Heather Hartema of Garner, Iowa, Branch 4375. Artema plans to major in health professions at North Iowa Area Community College and then transfer to a four-year university. Artema's high school color guard coach said she was the hardest worker she has coached in 20 years. Sierra became an invaluable leader and team member, Coach Jen Osterkamp said. She is always trying new things and pushing herself outside of her comfort zone. Her leadership and commitment made a positive impact on our team, our school, and me. I have no doubt that this will continue into her college and adult life. Jacob Langill of Rumford, Rhode Island, son of Jason Langill of Providence, Rhode Island Branch 15, was awarded a $500 scholarship. Jacob Langill also won a Doherty scholarship from NALC, see page 6. Langill plans to study engineering in college. For as long as I can remember, I have been interested in the development of technology and engineering, he wrote. In both middle school and in high school, I have taken part in every STEM and engineering class that is offered, and I wish to pursue engineering as my career in the future. I have the benefit of growing up in a union family for my whole life, he added. Both my mom and my dad are longtime union members, and because of this, they have developed extremely stable and resilient jobs. They are guaranteed certain privileges at work and away from work, and they have developed into helpful and productive members of society. Ciara Quinn of Millbury, Massachusetts, was awarded a $1,000 scholarship. Her father, Kevin Quinn, is a member of Worcester, Massachusetts, Branch 12. Quinn plans to study international relations, business, and law with an eye toward a career addressing issues such as immigration policy, water and food sustainability, human trafficking, and the rights of women and marginalized populations. Quinn tutored struggling students in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. I have learned so much about commitment and the work ethic and how to motivate others to do their best, she wrote about the experience. Quinn's high school guidance counselor, Anne E. Messervy, described her as an intellectual, poised, committed, and versatile young woman. Ciara thoroughly impressed me with her quiet yet purposeful leadership and scholarship, Messervy wrote. As a student, she is highly responsible, extremely dedicated, and capable of immense drive. Arabella Stommel of Lincoln, Nebraska, earned a $500 scholarship. Her mother, Stephanie Stommel, is a member of Lincoln Branch 8. Stommel is a biology major at Nebraska Wesleyan University, NWU. Her career goal is to become a pediatric physician's assistant. 
Her father is a member of the Transportation Communications Union, TCU IAM. My parents taught me a lot about each union over the years, she wrote. Unions assist members in various ways, including protecting fair wages and health benefits through contract negotiations. Arabella is an outstanding student, NWU Professor of Spanish Dr. Manuela Bersone wrote, and I am confident that she will make the Union Plus Scholarship Program proud. Madison Wells of Katy, Texas was awarded a $500 scholarship. Her father, Joshua Wells, is a member of Houston Branch 283. Madison plans to study nursing. In her application, Wells wrote about her diagnosis of dyslexia and how she made it into a positive factor in her life. In the past, writing an essay like this would have caused me so much stress and anxiety because of my dyslexia. But I decided a long time ago that I would not let this define me, and that I would never use it as a crutch, and that I would never let it hold me back, she wrote. Her high school activities included the Best Buddies International Program, which pairs volunteers with students with intellectual or development disabilities as friends and mentors. She described mentoring students with disabilities through the program as, quote, one of the best decisions I have made in my life. The Union Plus Scholarship Program awards scholarships based on outstanding academic achievement, personal character, financial need, and commitment to the values of organized labor. Since starting the program in 1991, Union Plus has awarded more than $5.4 million in educational funding to more than 3,800 union members, spouses, and dependent children. Union Plus Scholarship Awards are granted to students attending or planning to attend a two-year college, four-year college, graduate school, or a recognized technical or trade school. For information about scholarship eligibility and applications, go to unionplus.org scholarship. In addition to the scholarship program, Union Plus provides a range of money-saving programs and services for union members and their families. Go to nalc.org member benefits slash benefits dash for dash members slash union dash plus for details. Letter carriers assist in regional offices as ROAs. Last year, NALC created the Regional Office Assistant, ROA, position in response to the vacancies of several regional field secretary positions nationwide. The vacancies gave the union an opportunity to hire experienced union representatives to fill those positions. These representatives not only possess the skill set necessary to provide clerical, organizational, and operational support for their regional offices. They also provide additional contractual and representational support to the regions and the members. And since they are letter carriers themselves, they have the unique ability to relate to everyday issues of the NALC members who call the regional offices on a daily basis. So far, eight regional office assistants, ROAs, have been appointed to provide administrative support to regional offices. Krista Abraham of Minneapolis, Minnesota, Branch 9, Region 7, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Anthony Bossie of Massachusetts, Northeast Merge, Branch 25, Region 14, Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Richard Byrne of Greeley, Colorado, Branch 324, Region 4, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Oklahoma, and Wyoming. Rachel Genesek of DeKalb, Illinois, Branch 706, Region 3, Illinois, Mary Beth Lloyd of Southeast Pennsylvania, Merged Branch 725, Region 12, Pennsylvania and Southern New Jersey, Jen Self of Portland, Oregon, Branch 82, Region 2, Alaska, Utah, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington, Felicity Strong of Marietta, Georgia, Branch 1119, 
Region 9, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, and Kyle Turner of Hazelwood, Missouri, Branch 5847, Region 5, Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas. Step AA Pay Adjustments Delayed The Postal Service has informed NALC that the pay adjustments for some part-time flexible letter carriers whose pay was incorrectly calculated while they were at Step AA are being delayed due to, quote, unanticipated problems. These adjustments are in accordance with National Level Settlement M-01980. Affected letter carriers were recently notified by a letter from the Postal Service. NALC reported on April 7th that these adjustments were tentatively scheduled for the July 21st paycheck. USPS states that the anticipated date for these adjustments will now be the September 1st paycheck. The couple that digs together discovers treasure together. Right before noon, one day in August 2021, Daytona Beach, Florida letter carriers Clinton Hayworth and his wife Candace Hayworth were metal detecting at Ponce Inlet when they heard the noise indicating something metal. Large granite stones line the inlet and create waves that entice surfers, and that means that people sometimes lose things there. There was a storm earlier that week, and it had pulled a lot of sand out, Hayworth explained. It caused a couple of craters into the beach area, and there was such soft sand that day that I was able to go over that spot, and this is a spot that I have been over hundreds of times before. The signal rang up as number 15 on the metal detector, which is usually just a soda tab, Hayworth said. We were going to pass it up, but we decided we don't like to leave trash on the beach. They dug up and inspected the item, which definitely wasn't a soda tab. It was so corroded being in the ocean for so long, Hayworth said. They soon realized it was a gold 1987 class ring, and after taking it home and cleaning it up, they noticed it had initials engraved into it, D-E-B. It was 10 karat gold, and it had a surfer emblem on there, so I was looking through the yearbooks and trying to find out which initials matched up with a surfer-looking guy, Hayworth said. He posted about it on the Daytona Dig and Find Metal Detection Club group on Facebook for help reaching the owner. A group member helped track down Donald Edward Brandle's wife, who thought it was a joke after Hayworth sent her a Facebook message. Soon, Hayworth was in touch with Brandle himself, who said he had lost the ring 34 years earlier during senior skip day at Ponce Inlet. I showed him a picture of where it was, and he said, yep, that's exactly the area I lost it, Hayworth said, and added, he said the wave that he caught when he lost it was one of the best waves he had ever had, so to him, it was worth it. It's amazing that the ring for 34 years stayed in that spot with all the hurricanes and surf we've had, Brandle told WESH-TV, the local NBC affiliate. There had been thousands of people metal detecting over that since 87, and it just so happened that that one day we just found it, Hayward said. The carrier sent it back to him priority mail, of course. And their new friend, Don Brandle, who lives on 40 acres of Civil War-era land in Alabama that used to be a trading post, invited them up there to search his property. We'll definitely take him up on that one day, Hayward said. Hayworth got started in metal detecting when he joined Daytona Dig and Find back in 2002. That club just kind of gave me the basic know-how of which metal detector works best in the sand or underwater and that kind of thing, he said. Once a year, they would have a hunt and they'd hide silver out in the surf or in the parks. Candace fell into it about seven years ago on a whim during a beach day, picking up a metal detector Hayworth had brought and having luck finding lots of coins in the surf. 
Learning that Hobby is mostly just trial and error, he says. Two hours before low tide, the couple will go out to the beach equipped with their metal detectors, sand scoop, and pinpointer, as well as water, sunscreen, and hats. A lot of the machines are so sophisticated these days that it'll give you a signal and it'll tell you how deep it is and approximately what size it is, Hayward said. They're really user-friendly. It'll tell you if it's a penny, it'll tell you if it's a silver ring, or a silver coin, or if it's gold. It'll also tell you if it's just a Bud Light pull tab. After turning on their detectors, the first thing they do is figure out their setting and run interference. That just basically makes sure if someone has a remote control car or another metal detectorist is out there, it's got a separate channel, so you're not getting feedback from them, and they're not getting feedback from you, he said. After that, they'll go to a setting to find, quote, ground balance. When near the soil and moved up a few times, the detector on that setting can sense how dense the soil, sand, or rocks are and adjust accordingly, which will typically allow the detector to find items that are within six inches. After that setting, we wear headphones so we can adjust so you're not getting the sounds of the beach and everything else, and you can hear those signals and tones. And then we'll set the volume and pretty much take it from there. When they get a hit with the detector, they'll begin to dig it up, sometimes using a sand scoop, a small shovel on a long pole that has holes in it so sand sifts through. So, quote, some of the earrings that we find will slide right through, Hayworth said, but most of the time, it'll pick up rings, pennies and dimes, quarters, hoop earrings. For tiny items, they'd use a device called a pinpointer. That's like when you go through the airport. It's kind of like the wand, but it's a little bit smaller, he said. It'll find those earrings or somebody's gold teeth or that kind of stuff. The really small stuff. It's pretty sensitive. Keeping the integrity of the beach is important to them. Though most of the items they find each expedition are, quote, just junk and could be skipped over, Hayworth says, we like to dig pretty much everything that we find because we're kind of cleaning up the beach as we go. There's no real technique, though, as Hayworth explains. It all comes down to luck. I've seen people out there that just swing back and forth really high. They'll find as many things as I will just cruising at a slow pace, he said. It's just the timing of being over that item at the right time, after the right tide, and that kind of thing. You just never know what you're going to find. Over the years, they have found a lot of jewelry and coins, but also things like parking signs, bike trailers, and fish hooks. The beach is their favorite place to search, mostly because it's frequently busy at any given time. As long as the water is warm enough for people to come to the beach and hang out, there's a good chance that somebody will drop something of value, he said. The club, which meets once a month but has an online presence between meetings, makes it easier to help locate people who've lost things. Hayworth said it's a good feeling when they can get something back to people through the local lost and found. Despite their busy postal schedule, the North Florida Branch 53 members try to do metal detecting at least once a week. It's much easier to go during the week when the crowds aren't there, Hayworth, a 29-year carrier said. It's just nice and peaceful. Otherwise, you have to deal with people asking you, What's the best thing you found? And they just want to find out more about it, which is understandable. He added that he's more talkative when people approach than Candace, who has delivered mail since 2017. She just likes to get out there and kind of zone out and just do her own thing, he says. The couple used to be able to spend up to eight hours during a session, but since two hurricanes last year, there's much less beach available. It'll come back eventually, but you really have to time it, Hayworth said. Now I think that the most we could probably spend out there is about four hours, two hours before low tide, and then the two hours after low tide. That's kind of like the sweet spot. One of their best days was last fall, soon after one of the hurricanes. There was this one area on the beach where we were finding silver coin after silver coin after silver coin, he said, and estimated there were 150 in total. 
It turned out to be near an old poker room from the 50s and 60s. We spent all day. It was signal after signal after signal. We were just pulling all these old coins. They're still working on cleaning up that hall. The Haworths enjoy documenting their finds and the process via GoPro or iPhone and sharing on their website, as well as posting on YouTube and across social media as at the couple that digs together. It's just a fun sport. And that's what it's all about, just getting out here, having fun, and sharing it with others, Hayworth said. I like getting out there and decompressing and unwinding. It doesn't take a lot of effort. You get out there and you get sunshine. And everybody's usually in a good mood at the beach. They spend many Sundays, holidays, and evenings out on the beach two blocks from their house and usually stick to beaches they know, as some either don't allow metal detecting or require a permit. They do travel for their hobby on occasion, though. We like to go on cruises, and we've also taken our metal detectors to different parts of the Caribbean, he said. Sometimes you find the same stuff that you would back home, beer bottle caps and stuff like that, but every once in a while you'll find a ring in the Bahamas, and that's kind of fun. Because of the technological advancement in metal detectors, it's definitely becoming a popular hobby, Hayworth said. After news about the class ring hit on social media, he says, a retired carrier reached out to him about helping figure out a good beginner metal detector. I always like teaching people how to get started, he said. Hayworth is beginning to get some energy back after being diagnosed with an aggressive lymphoma last November. The chemo just wipes you out, he said. It's definitely taken a toll on how many times we've been out, but I'm cancer-free now. It's been a wild journey. Because of that, the Hayworths try to take it easy. Now, he says, as long as there's no thunderstorms in the evening, we'll go out, and if it's low tide, we'll go out after work. Sometimes we keep our uniforms on, and we go out there and get a little more sun. But they plan to keep up their activity for the foreseeable future, wherever it may take them. The lure of possible treasure is always there for the couple that digs together. When you do find that one cool item, it's pretty neat, Hayworth said. On page 23 is How a Fight with President Teddy Roosevelt Stripped Letter Carriers of Their Right to Strike. Article 18 of the USPS-NALC National Agreement is devoted exclusively to the no-strike clause. The concise language puts it simply, letter carriers and the National Association of Letter Carriers will not call or sanction a strike or slowdown against the Postal Service. Many think that this rule emerged from the Great Postal Strike of 1970, when letter carriers in New York City began a wildcat strike that went nationwide and ultimately secured collective bargaining rights. Others, however, know that those strikers risked arrest for their decision to stand against the federal government because the no-strike clause was based on a no-strike law that had been on the books for almost 60 years before the strike. Indeed, what many are unaware of is that the no-strike law emerged after President Theodore Teddy Roosevelt got fed up with letter carriers and effectively told them to shut up. Almost immediately, following the passage of a civil service reform bill in 1883, see how an assassin's bullet helped create the postal exam in the November 2020 issue of the postal record, letter carriers strove to improve their working conditions, and there was a lot that needed improving. At the time, letter carriers were expected to work 365 days a year, including Sundays, for as many hours as they were told to work, and with no overtime pay. There was no health insurance, no pension, and no opportunity to negotiate wages. That was true for most working people at the time, and often, the only way private sector workers could improve their working conditions was to join a union and, usually through work slowdowns or strikes, attempt to force the hand of their employers. While some strikes were successful, some were brutally suppressed. Letter carriers' first collective effort was to obtain leave. Managers at the post office department in Washington, D.C. got 30 days of vacation leave per year, which was 30 days more than letter carriers received. Letter carriers petitioned the post office department for comparable leave, 
but were turned away and told that no law existed under which letter carriers could be allowed any vacation days whatsoever. So letter carriers decided to rectify that. They found a champion in New York Representative Samuel Sunset Cox, who was able to persuade his fellow members of Congress in 1884 to pass legislation giving all letter carriers 15 days of vacation, with pay, every year. Flush with victory, letter carriers moved on to the next struggle, joining the national movement for an eight-hour workday. While the entire nation was up in arms, striking and protesting over the issue, employers successfully halted the effort for a universal eight-hour law. But letter carriers were getting adept at lobbying Congress, which passed an eight-hour day law specifically for letter carriers, despite the strong objections of the post office department. See, the eight-hour day, how letter carriers fight, led to a Supreme Court victory and legitimized the newly formed National Association of Letter Carriers in the March 2021 issue of the Postal Records. After the National Association of Letter Carriers, NALC, was organized in 1889, letter carriers continued to use their lobbying clout to further their causes in Congress, much to the consternation of the Post Office Department. Management was further troubled the following year when another postal union, the National Association of Postal Clerks, was organized. By 1895, Postmaster General William Wilson had had enough of postal employee lobbying. He issued an order forbidding postal workers from coming to Washington for the purpose of influencing legislation before Congress. Letter carriers and other postal employees ignored the directive and lobbied vigorously, and successfully, for pay increases and other legislation. By 1902, the Postmaster General's boss, the President of the United States, decided to step in and put a gag on the postal employees. President Teddy Roosevelt issued an executive order on January 31, 1902, forbidding all postal and federal employees, directly or indirectly, individually or through associations, from soliciting members of Congress for wage increases or from trying to influence the passage of any other legislation, except through the heads of their department. And you'll see President James Keller personally pleaded the letter carrier's case to Roosevelt, but the president was unmoved. The gag order stayed in effect, but while the executive order said that letter carriers couldn't lobby their representatives, it didn't say anything about the women in their lives. Responding to an organizing call from Portland, Oregon, Branch 82's Ladies Auxiliary, 72 women from 52 cities in 26 states met on September 5, 1905 during NLC's 5th National Convention in Portland to form a National Ladies Auxiliary, the forerunner of today's NLC Auxiliary. They unanimously elected as the organization's first president, Nellie Heffelfinger, a member of Branch 24's Auxiliary in Los Angeles. Their goal, Heffelfinger said, was to aid wherever possible the carriers, both socially and financially. Four days later, the NLC's delegates formally recognized its new partner during the union's convention. The auxiliary picked up the lobbying slack for the letter carriers. Other postal workers were looking for organized support outside of the post office as well. In 1906, the nascent American Federation of Labor granted a charter to the National Federation of Post Office Clerks. The AFL demanded the restoration of civil rights of federal employees and the alleviation of unfavorable working conditions and inadequate pay. In response, Roosevelt raised the stakes by issuing another executive order, this one permitting department heads to dismiss employees without notice and contrary to previous practices, without stating the reasons in writing. Meanwhile, NELC continued its lobbying of Congress through the auxiliary and through the informal and private efforts of letter carriers, obtaining a modest pay increase from Congress in 1907. In 1909, Roosevelt's successor, President William Howard Taft, forbade postal and federal employees from answering congressional requests for information on their pay or working conditions unless authorized to do so by their department heads. Behind this wall of silence, the post office department took advantage, forcing employees to work longer and harder without any increase in pay or benefits. Working conditions deteriorated and the morale of postal employees plummeted. 
militant factions arose in the ranks of postal workers, especially the railway postal clerks. Having lost the one advantage they had over their private sector counterparts, postal workers turned to the tools of those of the private sector unionists with unrest, defiance of orders, work stoppages, and threats of formal strikes erupting throughout the service. Despite the department's efforts to prevent it, the complaints of workers, including letter carriers, reached Congress. In 1910, Democrats wrested control of the House of Representatives from Roosevelt and Taft's conservative Republican allies, and in the Senate, control had split among Democrats, progressive Republicans, and conservative Republicans. Senator Robert LaFollette, a progressive Republican from Wisconsin, called for hearings about the working conditions and gag orders. NELC President William E. Kelly urged passage of anti-gag legislation before the Senate Committee on Post Offices and Post Roads, and Samuel Gompers, president of the AFL, actively supported removal of the gags. President Taft defended the gag rule in 1911 by asserting that government employees should be held to different standards. Government employees are a privileged class upon whose entry into government service it is entirely reasonable to impose conditions that should not and ought not be imposed upon those who serve private employers. Congress was unmoved. Lafouette and Representative James Lloyd, a Democrat from Missouri, led the effort to pass the bill in both houses of Congress. On August 24, 1912, the Lloyd-Lafouette Act was enacted rescinding the gag rule and ending 10 years of severe repression of letter carriers and other government workers. Besides outlawing the gag rule and guaranteeing government workers the right to petition and lobby Congress, the Lloyd LaFollette Act recognized the right of postal and federal employees to organize and join labor organizations. And yet, the very means by which postal workers had worked to regain their rights were used against them. Some members of Congress feared the influence of the AFL and suggested that if postal workers belonged to the Labor Federation, they could be compelled to strike against the government itself. And so, at the last moment, an amendment was added, forbidding postal employees from affiliating with any outside organization that imposed, quote, an obligation or duty to engage in any strike against the United States, or that proposed to assist postal employees in such a strike. The 1912 legislation would remain the most important piece of legislation affecting the rights of letter carriers and the NALC for a half century until 1962 when President John F. Kennedy issued Executive Order 10988, which established a formal labor relations program in the federal government. The no-strike law has been on the books for the past 111 years, and postal employees have been arrested for work slowdowns and stoppages in the years since, including two letter carriers who were arrested in 1969, less than a year before the Great Postal Strike. Nowadays, NALC can lobby Congress on letter carriers' behalf, while collective bargaining forces USPS to engage in meaningful negotiations of letter carriers' pay and benefits. But it took decades of struggle and effort for letter carriers to win these rights, including an illegal wildcat strike in 1970. And long before that, it also took letter carriers standing up to two U.S. presidents and refusing to have their voices gagged. Hi, I'm Paul Barner, your executive vice president, and I'll be reading my August officer's column titled, New Supervisor Metric Does Not Create Performance Requirements. In a recent USPS Area and Regional Update, June 2023 publication, Chief Retail and Delivery Officer Joshua Collin wrote a column stating that USPS had challenged its supervisors to improve three metrics during six different supervisor symposiums. Two of the three metrics indicated by Collin in the column relate directly to city carriers. One of these metrics was timely movement of carriers to the street within 60 minutes, 90 minutes for walking routes. 
Another expectation that Colin mentioned was for supervisors to achieve a 50% reduction in stationary time. While training for USPS supervisors is normally a good thing, I am concerned that these blanket statements can be misleading for supervisors who could mistakenly believe that these metrics create new handbook provisions and performance standards for city carriers. I'm also concerned that letter carriers could feel pressured to skip necessary tasks or work unsafely to meet these arbitrary, bogus expectations. Regardless of whatever goals, metrics, or directives USPS creates for supervisors, carriers always should rely on the provisions of Handbook M41, City Delivery Carriers Duties and Responsibilities, for the rules regarding office and street activities. As NLC recently posted on social media, there are no handbook provisions limiting carriers to 60 minutes of office time, or in the case of walking routes, 90 minutes of office time. Depending on the day, mail volume, and route circumstances, the enforcement by management of a predetermined office time may result in violations of Article 19 of the National Agreement. NLC addressed this false perception that all routes should have less than 60 minutes of office time, or in the case of walking routes, 90 minutes of office time, in Contract Talk article in the January edition of the Postal Record. I would encourage all carriers, if you haven't already, to be sure to read this article. Likewise, there are no handbook provisions related to stationary time on the street. You can read more about management's misuse of stationary time in the Contract Talk article found on page 42 of this postal record. Over the years, management has used a variety of efficiency tools, computer programs, and blanket-type policies to pressure city cares while they are in the performance of their duties. This is nothing new. In the past, USPS has developed many programs, including the Delivery Unit Volume Recording System, Duvers, the Piece Count Recording System, PCRS, Projected Office Street Time Program, POST, the Performance Engagement Tool, PET, and the Delivery Operations Information System, DOAS, to project letter carrier office and street time. Unfortunately, all of them have frequently been used in ways that violate the national agreement. Keep in mind, the use of any management-created system or tool that calculates a workload projection does not change the Lair Care's reporting requirements outlined in Section 131.4 of Handbook M41, the Supervisor's Scheduling Responsibilities outlined in Section 122 of Handbook M39, management of delivery services, or the letter carriers and supervisors' responsibilities contained in Section 28 of Handbook M41. While carriers are required to follow the instructions of management, if those instructions violate these handbook provisions, they should contact their shop steward to investigate whether grievance should be filed. Carriers are in the best position to determine their work daily workload and to estimate how long it will take to complete their routes. Be confident in your communication with management when you are fulfilling your reporting requirements, and don't be afraid to ask for overtime or auxiliary assistance if you need it. In my April Postal Record article, I explain what's required and how carriers should interact with management when estimating and reporting their workload. Follow the provisions of Handbook M41, request and submit a PS Form 3996, get a copy to protect yourself, and communicate with your shop steward.
For decades, city cares have expressed concerns about undue stress and anxiety created on the workroom floor by the misuse of these types of programs and blanket postal policies. When management issues these blanket statements about performance, don't be fooled into believing these arbitrary numbers and feeling pressured to achieve management's unrealistic expectations. By using the protections of the National Agreement and following the provisions of the M41, city cares can alleviate stress, reduce friction with supervisors, and rest a little easier. This is Sarah Thomas reading Vice President James D. Henry's column, MRS Updates. Are you familiar with the Materials Reference System, MRS? It is a key tool for many who are involved in the grievance arbitration process. The MRS is a collection of contract administration materials assembled by NALC Headquarters Contract Administration Unit. The MRS index contains summaries and, in some cases, the full text of many important national-level materials, including settlements of Step 4 grievances, national-level pre-arbitration settlements, memorandums, USPS policy statements, NALC publications, and more, which help to enforce the collective bargaining agreement. Although the appearance and layout of the MRS index has substantially changed compared to its 2014 publication, the new format now gives NALC headquarters the ability to update the MRS in real time. This means that documents are frequently being added to be readily available for shop stewards, officers, and more. Using the MRS will allow shop stewards to make proper arguments and have better formulated case files. A complete list of MRS document summaries can be found at the bottom of the NALC Resources webpage. Below are recent documents added to the MRS. M01990. This MOU contains the agreed-upon procedures to follow when all city letter carrier assignments are permanently moved from an independent installation to an SNDC. The process outlined in this MOU does not apply when an installation is discontinued and or consolidated, or when a station or branch is transferred or made independent in accordance with Articles 12.5 C.1, 12.5 C.2, and or 12.5 C.3 of the National Agreement. M01991. The process outlined in this MOU does not apply when an installation is discontinued and or consolidated, or when a station or branch is transferred or made independent in accordance with Articles 12.5.C.1, 12.5.C.2, and or 12.5.C.3 of the National Agreement. M01993. This MOU regards the agreement of the national parties to allow regular workforce career employees covered by the USPS-NALC National Agreement to carry over 520 hours of accumulated annual leave from leave year 2023 to leave year 2024, M01994. This is a letter from USPS to NALC acknowledging that the bidding procedures outlined in Article 12.3a of the National Agreement are renewed, effective May 21, 2023. Employees will be allowed to continue bidding during the period of ongoing contract negotiations and or in the event of an impasse. M01995. This is a memorandum of agreement in which the national parties agree that Step B teams 
are prohibited from citing or quoting regular panel arbitration awards in any decision unless the award is from the installation where the grievance arose and is relevant to the subject matter at issue. An important M document commonly used by shop stewards is USPS Policy Letter Re Arbitration Award Compliance, or M01517. The USPS policy letter supports contractual language in Article 15.3.A of the National Agreement. It also is directed toward management, requiring them to bargain in good faith and honor settlements made. Compliance has been a significant reason for the rise in numbers of grievances at Step B and arbitration. Recently, NALC was made aware of management's arguments against M01517. Management asserts that the postal policy is neither an agreement between the parties nor a precedent-setting MOU, and it is not part of the National Agreement or Joint Contract Administration Manual, or JCAM. If management makes an argument similar to the aforementioned, please make sure that you respond to that argument properly and refer to the M01517 policy letter as just that, USPS policy. M0157 was signed by Postmaster General Patrick Donahoe on May 31st, 2002, and states in part, compliance with arbitration awards and grievance settlements is not optional. No manager or supervisor has the authority to ignore or override an arbitrator's award or assigned grievance settlement. Steps to comply with arbitration awards and grievance settlements should be taken in a timely manner to avoid the perception of non-compliance, and those steps should be documented. Please ensure that all managers and supervisors in your area are aware of this policy and their responsibility to implement arbitration awards and grievance settlements in a timely manner. For those of you who have been wanting for those of you who have been wanting to be more active in the union, do it. Being a shop steward, a dispute resolution team member, or holding any other position in the NALC is not for the faint of heart. The NALC provides you with the National Agreement, JCAM, MRS, and other resources and tools to help you succeed as a union representative. In the words of former First Lady Michelle Obama, your success will be determined by your confidence and fortitude. Hi, this is Nicole Ryan, National Secretary-Treasurer. This is my article titled, Frequently Asked IRS Questions. Branch officers often call NALC headquarters with questions about financial issues. Many questions also surface during officer training. After the question is answered, the branch officer may be directed to the NELC Branch Officer's Guide to Finance and Administration, available for purchase from this NELC Supply Department or for free on the NELC website from the Secretary Treasurer's page. The guide is broken down into the following sections. Branch Officer Duties, NELC Dues, Reporting to the U.S. Department of Labor, Reporting to the N- Internal Revenue Service, bonding requirements, and branch record keeping. If your branch secretary treasurer does not have this guide, I suggest that the branch get one for use by all fiduciary officers in the branch. The following is a sample of common IRS-related questions asked during phone calls or during training seminars, as well as the answers and where the answers can be found in the NELC Branch Officer's Guide to Finance and Administration. If we pay our stewards $150 per month as a stipend, do we have to file a W-2? Yes. Stewards are considered to be employees of the branch, whether they are appointed by the branch president or elected by the branch membership. And as such, the branch must report stipends as wages, 
and withhold the appropriate taxes. This holds true for all officers of a branch receiving any payments that could be considered wages. See pages 4-4 and 4-5 of the guide. I heard that if you stay under $600 per year paid to a branch officer, you don't have to do anything, not even issue a 1099. Is this true? No. Again, officers are considered employees of the branch, and as such, the branch must deduct payroll taxes, and the branch must pay taxes since the branch is an employer. It does not matter how much money an employee earns. The branch must pay all payroll taxes and issue a W-2. See page 4-7 of the guide. A Form 1099 miscellaneous is issued under two circumstances. One, the branch makes a payment under a non-accountable plan to a member who is not considered an employee under IRS tax rules. See pages 4-15 and 4-16 of the guide. Or two, the branch makes a payment to somebody who is not a member for services rendered to the branch, most commonly a contractor. The 1099 miscellaneous must be issued only for services rendered and not when payments are made to purchase goods. The 1099 miscellaneous must be issued only when tax payments to the individual are $600 or more during the tax year. See page 4-18 of the guide. However, this does not exempt the individual from claiming the extra income. My branch or state association has been receiving notices from our state that we must purchase workers' compensation insurance. Is this true? In all 50 states, if you pay any wages, you are considered an employer and workers' compensation insurance is mandatory. See page 4-7 of the guide. In some states, the insurance must be secured directly with the state fund. In most states, the premium and benefit structures are set by each state government, but the actual insurance coverage is provided by standard insurance companies via your insurance agent. Volunteers and or employees who receive very little compensation may be exempt from such coverage in some states. Check your state's website for further information and or clarification. Are there any documentation requirements for per diem payments? Yes. The branch needs to maintain proof of an overnight stay, a hotel receipt, a copy of a round-trip plane ticket, or other similar documentation should be sufficient. The branch need not collect documentation or receipts of the amount of expenses actually incurred. See pages 4-13 through 4-17 of the guide for more information on per diem. Is an early payment to a hotel or airline considered a travel advance? No. Making an early payment directly to a hotel or airline or reimbursing a member for the actual cost of an airline ticket purchased in advance for approved branch travel is not considered a travel advance. Is it okay to give branch officers travel advances? Travel advances are okay as long as a branch keeps certain rules in mind. To be in compliance with the rules outlined by the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act, or the LMRDA, the sum of all advances to any one individual in a fiscal year should never exceed $2,000. Also, the officer receiving the advance should document expenditures against the advance and return to the branch any excess funds for which documentation was not submitted. In addition, IRS rules require an advance for expenses to be made within a reasonable time, generally no more than 30 days before the expenses are expected to be incurred. Under the LMRDA, an advance for expenses is considered a reportable loan unless the advance is provided within 30 days of travel and accounted for within 30 days following the trip. See page 4-21 of the guide. 
To avoid problems encountered when advances are not properly accounted for, it may be best to forego advances and instead reimburse for actual expenses after receipts have been submitted or opt to provide per diem per the IRS guidelines. Hi, my name is Mac Julian, your Assistant Secretary Treasurer. I'll be reading my August officer's column titled, The Overtime Coin. If there is one thing that I have learned in my 25 years in the Postal Service, there are two sides to the overtime coin. For the past couple of years, especially right after the COVID-19 pandemic began, we have seen the worst side of the coin. The Postal Service is now so understaffed that it is mandating that carriers every day work overtime that they otherwise would not work. Many are seeking medical documentation to avoid the constant mandatory overtime. Although Article 8 is supposed to have safeguards to limit the amount of overtime that a carrier is required to work, there's really no way around it when you are as poorly staffed as the Postal Service is. That is why staffing is one of the primary issues that we are seeking to fix through negotiations. But resolving this latest crisis will require that the Postal Service step up to the plate financially. As a practical business matter, staffing must be high on the priority list for the Postal Service if we are going to be successful in this very competitive market. While I've always believed that the Postal Service would rather be understaffed than properly staffed, the ability to hire and retain will hinge on properly compensating the letter carrier workforce. Recently, I spoke with some members about what happens when their office is properly staffed and there is actually a letter carrier on every assignment. This may be the ideal situation and bring welcome relief for those who just want to do eight and skate. But it can be traumatic for those who have become accustomed to the extra pay and the lifestyle the overtime pay provides. Although there are many carriers who complain about being overworked and burnt out, there's another segment who are committed to that life of making all the money they can while they can. These opposites generally have totally different views on life in the Postal Service. As union reps, our attention usually is focused on carriers who are being mandated to work the overtime that they do not want. These members have accepted the job as advertised and want to go home after they complete their eight-hour schedule. A carrier shouldn't be required to have an appointment or reason to go home other than it is the end of their workday. And we shouldn't have to get medical documentation to state the obvious. It's in the best interest of our health to limit our workday to eight hours. An overburdened workforce can lead to more on-the-job injuries and a contentious and hostile work environment. Sound familiar? This has been the case for most post offices across the country during this latest staffing crisis. Most will point to the mandatory overtime as being the source of the problem. But I believe that the overtime is, in fact, symptom of this failure to properly staff our offices. Those who have been in the service for an extended period have seen this movie play out before. The abundance of overtime will disappear. When that happens, we will see the other side of the overtime coin. Carriers who have based their lifestyle and spending on the overtime pay 
will find themselves in a financial hole. The overtime they have come to depend on will no longer be there. When I used to speak with new carriers at orientation or upon their conversion to career, I always warn them about how misleading overtime pay can be. If you look at the pay chart, I am sure you will find there is no base salary over $100,000. At the same time, there are many carriers who have already exceeded their total listed level of pay for the year. That in itself is not a bad thing, but it becomes problematic if you create your bills based on the overtime. We all agree that city carriers deserve a higher wage across the board, and that is what the NALC is fighting for. But overtime pay should be treated like gravy in addition to your base salary. This requires discipline, but we must learn to live within our means. The overtime pay will come and go. The important thing is to remember that it is not reliable or the main entree. It's just gravy. And with reports of letter carriers making more than double their listed salary, that's a whole lot of gravy. Just as we have seen in the past, the Postal Service will be properly staffed again because it's in the best interest of the company to do so. But this time, it's going to cost them to get there. Hi, this is Michelle McQuality, Special Assistant to the President, and I will be reading Director of City Delivery, Christopher Jackson's article, found on page 30 of the August Postal Record. Clarifications on Tayarip. Lately, I have been receiving questions from members about the Technology Integrated Alternate Route Evaluation and Adjustment Process, Tayarip. I want to use this month's article to provide an update on Tayarip and answer a few commonly asked questions. One of the most frequently asked questions about Tayarip is, what is the status of the zip codes, zones, being evaluated? Are routes being added? abolished, and are right-sized? As of the end of June, approximately 800 zones had been evaluated and adjusted using Tiri. After the initial adjustments were implemented, more than 700 routes had been added and 170 routes had been abolished, with a net result of approximately 530 additional routes nationwide. Keep in mind, there are approximately 1,200 zones that are still pending evaluation and adjustment this fall. The remaining zones include the May opt-in period and any zones not completed from the previous opt-in periods. Remember also that TREP includes a mandatory review process, and many of the zones listed above are still pending this review, so additional routes may be added or abolished in the review process. During TREP, carriers have also asked what expedited bidding is and how it works. When the Carrier Optimal Routing core, program is used to adjust routes, TREP allows local branch presidents to decide whether the full-time city carriers in the zones being adjusted should have the opportunity to rebid the routes before implementation of the adjustment using expedited bidding. Expedited bidding allows full-time city carriers to select a bid assignment by seniority when routes are changed, eliminated, or added as a result of a route adjustment. If the branch president elects to do so, the expedited bid will start with the senior carrier in the zone who gets to choose what will be their new assignment once the adjustment is implemented. Next, the second highest carrier will choose, and then so on down the seniority list until all the full-time carriers have selected an assignment. If there is more than one zone being adjusted in the office, the TREP guidelines, M1983, page 21, allows the branch president to decide which zones 
or if all zones should have the opportunity to rebid. Another recent question has been about the reliability of the data being used for evaluation and adjustments. Some carriers have expressed concerns that route times, stationary time, and carrier activities recorded by the mobile delivery device, MDD, might be inaccurate. You also might be aware that in some locations, management has begun issuing discipline for time-wasting practices, inefficiency, or poor performance based solely on MDD stationary time. At times, as part of this discipline process, management has attempted to use TREAP data as a justification for the charges. Unfortunately, local management may be unaware about how MDD breadcrumb data is gathered, compiled, and evaluated in the route adjustment process. The use of this type of data for route evaluation and adjustment is very different in TREAP than what management is citing in the discipline process. Each day, as the carrier delivers their route, Breadcrumbs are generated by the movement of the MDD from one GPS location to another. These breadcrumbs are collected by the MDD, and when the device is cradled in the docking station at the delivery unit, the data is transmitted to a USPS computer program called Digital Street Review, DSR. Each day, the breadcrumbs are characterized by the DSR program into assumed carrier activities and used to create a virtual PS Form 3999 of the route. However, as described in this month's Contract Talk article, the MDD cannot know precisely what the carrier is or isn't doing when the MDD is stationary. The DSR program uses an algorithm to identify the most likely reason the MDD may be stationary and applies that carrier activity to the stationary event. Often, the identifier applied by DSR is inaccurate, and that is why during TREAP, the Route Evaluation and Adjustment Team, REIT, will consult with the carrier to make certain that all of the activities are properly recorded. The REIT evaluating the routes must review, investigate, and edit the DSR carrier events to ensure that the entries accurately reflect the time and activities on the carrier's route. Additionally, for a variety of reasons, the breadcrumbs might be characterized properly by the DSR program. For each route evaluated, the REITs compile eight weeks of data using information gathered in the consultation edit as necessary to ensure data accuracy, and then develop the average street time. While the review and editing of this data can be time-consuming for the REIT, doing so is absolutely necessary as the breadcrumbs alone cannot accurately evaluate a route. For a detailed explanation of management's obligations regarding street supervision, stationary time, and disciplinary action, read this month's contract talk found on page 36. If you want to learn more about joint route adjustments and DSR, read the TREAP article beginning on page 17 of the July 2022 edition of the Postal Record. Hello, this is Manny Peralta. This month's article is a reflection on a number of letter carriers who have died through the years as a result of heat-related injuries. It's titled, The Tragedies Were Preventable. This month's column hurts. It hurts because management's actions or inactions contribute to how we behave and the decisions we make. Below, you will find that management from the frontline level all the way to the top of this organization is not interested in hearing the truth of how important it is to train all employees on how to acclimate to the heat or how to protect themselves from the hazards of extreme heat. In the summer of 2012, the heartland of America was under siege through a heat wave. The letter carriers delivering mail in that area 
were also under siege by their managers because they were taking too much time to deliver the mail while they suffered through a heat wave. On July the 23rd, 2012, John Watzlawick, a letter carrier from Independence, Missouri, had just returned to duty following a six-week medical absence without any opportunity to acclimate to the heat at its worst. He barely made it through that day and eventually called his supervisor, who told him there was no help, so he would have to continue. The next day, John suffered again, called management, was again told that there was no help, so he continued until he couldn't. John died on the afternoon of July the 24th, 2012. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, conducted an investigation and issued a citation against the post office. The citation was contested and OSHA defended its actions before a judge from the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. The judge issued a scathing decision finding that the culture at the USPS pushed employees to continue working when its managers knew better but wanted to make their numbers. Why? Because their district manager was pushing from the top. The judge offered these words. From the very top of the management chain down to the floor supervisor, the message was clear. He is not an excuse for performance issues. Mr. Behrens, the acting officer in charge at the time of the incident, gave sworn testimony that Gail Hendricks and Steve Eblen told him and other managers that heat does not matter and that employees should be able to perform within their expected delivery parameters regardless of the weather. For further information, see my November 2014 column. On June the 8th, 2018, Daniel Rosenbach of Branch 361 Lexington, Kentucky, died of a heart attack, which was later proven to be triggered by the extreme heat. He had not received heat illness prevention training, was not given a chance to acclimate to the heat, and he died after being assigned to carry a route by himself for the first time. Just one month later, on July the 6th, 2018, Tri-Valley, California, Branch 2902 letter carrier Peggy Frank returned to work following a three-month medical absence, walking into a heat wave with the temperature reaching 117 degrees. She was not hip-trained, and she had not been given an opportunity to acclimate to the heat. She died that afternoon, and management attempted to deflect responsibility by chalking it up to other medical issues and her age. Shame on management. Management had been caught falsifying records, claiming that Peggy had received the required hip training. She had not, and she was on medical leave when the training was conducted. OSHA failed to cite the post office for falsification, which should have resulted in criminal penalties. Shame on OSHA. The following summer, city letter carrier assistant Rosalind Westfall died as a result of the heat on June the 27th in St. Louis, Missouri. She was not acclimated to the heat wave that the area was experiencing. Further, she had informed management that she was not feeling well before they forced her to go out and deliver. Two years later, brand new letter carrier Dalvir Bossi of Branch 193 San Jose, California, who was delivering his route for the first time by himself, died on June the 19th, 2021. He too was not given the necessary hip training, nor was he given the chance to acclimate to the heat, being experienced in that area. At this point, I am angry. I'm angry that OSHA recently withdrew the citation issued in the death of Peggy Frank 
in late 2018 instead of defending it before a judge. Had OSHA, under the previous administration, cited the USPS for falsification of training records in the citation issued on the death of Peggy Frank, then we would be at trial before the OSHA Review Commission prosecuting the post office for its falsification of training records. We cannot control OSHA, but we can control our actions to the grievance procedure. Enforce the contract. I have been writing about this during the last few years. See my November 2022 column along with others. I am also saddened. On June the 20th, 2023, Dallas, Texas letter carrier Eugene Gates Jr. died. Details are still being investigated, but many signs point to it being heat-related. National business agent Sean Boyd and his team, as well as Branch 132 President Kamitra Lewis and her team, are taking all actions possible to investigate and discover the truth. They do so with courage, and they do so with care. This afternoon, I spoke with Kamitra and asked if she would share her words from the funeral for Eugene Gates that was held on July 1st. Kamitra, the membership thanks you for sharing the following. A resolution in loving memory of Eugene Gates Jr. We, the members of the National Association of Letter Carriers, Branch 132, wish to express our gratitude and respect for our beloved brother and friend, Eugene Gates Jr. It is written in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. And so whatever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serves the Lord Christ. Whereas Eugene Gates' commitment to obey the Lord through his work was demonstrated daily as he willingly served as a messenger of vital information he was recognized by his co-workers and his superiors as the first employee to report for work and the first employee to complete his assignment. Eugene's compassion for his work was extended to the customers he so faithfully served as a letter carrier at the Lakewood Post Office. Whereas Eugene Gates, through his postal career, possessed the quality and kindness, a gift he expressed in many ways in his dealings with his co-workers and his friends, Eugene's uniqueness made him admired and loved by all he met. Whereas the death of Eugene Gates was not expected, let it go on the record that his life was not in vain. The loss of Eugene brought attention to the working conditions at the United States Postal Service. His passing alerted the government to demand changes to protect the safety of the letter carriers while they perform their duties of service to the community throughout the state of Texas. Throughout the media, the loss of Eugene has brought about public concern for the letter carriers who are not only essential workers, but who are the backbone of the United States Postal Service. Whereas Eugene Gates' life displayed the characteristics of humility and meekness, God chose him as a vessel to bring about change. By his sacrifice, letter carriers across the nation will forever honor him. Therefore, be it resolved that we, the members of Branch 132, know the deep loss and sorrow your family is experiencing. 
We want to share in your sorrow, but at the same time, we want to recognize that the Lord has called home to his presence a good and faithful servant. And we know that the Lord was smiling as he welcomed Eugene to his heavenly reward. Eugene, you accepted the assignment and completed the task. This resolution is humbly submitted to the family of Eugene Gates Jr. on behalf of the members of the National Association of Letter Carriers and was read with heartfelt sympathy by his branch president, Kimitra Lewis, on July 1st, 2023. All of you be safe out there and keep an eye on each other. Hi, my name is Daniel Toth and I'm your Director of Retired Members. Today I will be reading my August 2023 Postal Record article titled FERS 101. It's important to understand the federal employees' retirement system FERS so that one understands how much money they need to save in addition, if any, to their FERS benefits in order to live their current or desired lifestyle in retirement. This column will focus on the basics of the FERS benefit. FERS provides a defined benefit which promises a specific benefit. The benefits are precisely calculated and one can predict their annuity given certain variables. This provides certainty over other benefits such as defined contribution plan, e.g. the thrift savings plan, so you're not dependent on your portfolio balance or variables outside of your control such as market fluctuations, interest rates, or economic catastrophes, to name a few. The variables that impact eligibility to retire and the calculation of the annuity are age, minimum retirement age, MRA, high three average salary, and years of service. To be eligible for an immediate voluntary retirement, aka a regular retirement, one must either be their MRA with 30 years of service or age 60 with 20 years of service or age 62 with five years of service. The MRA depends on one's year of birth and ranges from ages 55 to 57. Those born in 1970 or after have an MRA of 57. Anyone with at least five years of service will be eligible to collect a first pension at age 62, provided they don't leave service and request a refund of their FERS employee contributions. It is important to note that an employee is technically eligible to retire at MRA and only 10 years of service, and the Postal Service will notify them that they are eligible. But unless they meet the criteria above for an unreduced annuity, they will face severe and permanent reduction to their annuity. Years of service also are important in the annuity calculation. Each additional month of service will result in an increased annuity at the time of retirement. Employees with military service and certain non-career federal service may be able to make a deposit for that time so that it counts as credible service under FERS, thus increasing the annuity and possibly allowing one to be eligible for retirement at an earlier date. As of now, those with time as a city carrier assistant or a transitional employee, if performed after 1988, are not able to make a deposit for that time and receive credit toward retirement. The Federal Retirement Fairness Act could change that. This bill awaiting introduction into the House of Representatives will provide a majority of our workforce with previous non-career service the opportunity to make a deposit if desired. The high three average salary is what it sounds like. The highest three consecutive years of basic pay, which excludes overtime, penalty time, night differential, etc., for letter carriers, this is typically the last three years prior to retirement. The first basic benefit is calculated by multiplying years of service, the high three average salary, and a factor of either 1% or 1.1%, 0.01 or 0.011 respectively. 
1% is the default factor, but those who retired age 62 or later with at least 20 years of service would receive a factor of 1.1%, which amounts to a 10% increase in their basic benefit over the 1% factor. Rather than calculating an estimate on your own, you can refer to the Postal Record, which frequently publishes civil service retirement system and FERS annuity estimates tables with years of service ranging from 20 to 40 years. As of the latest estimate, an employee with 30 years of service and a high three average salary of $71,028 would gross $1,776 per month before a survivor benefit or other deductions, or $21,312 per year. Employees can and should also request annuity estimates directly from the Postal Service as they approach retirement eligibility. The annuity is a lifetime benefit with the inflation protection through cost of living adjustments, generally starting after age 62. To retain its value over the years, of course, the first benefit is just one component of any retirement. FERS was designed with the utilization of the Thrift Savings Plan and Social Security in mind and to work together for a healthy retirement. The FERS Special Annuity Supplement is another important consideration that benefits those retiring prior to age 62. Generally, a retiree must be either their MRA with 30 years of service or age 60 with 20 years of service to be eligible. The supplement will stop at age 62, which coincides with Social Security retirement eligibility. One does not need to apply for the supplement, it will be automatically included in the annuity payment when entitled. I recommend that every new employee grab a copy, either a hard copy from the branch or national business agent, or a digital copy on the NELC website of the booklet titled Questions and Answers on FERS. This booklet is a valuable resource as it covers many common retirement questions, not just about FERS, but also about Social Security, the Thrift Savings Plan, life and health insurance, survivor benefits, and more. Hi. I'm Jim Yates, your NALC Director of Life Insurance. Today, I'll be reading my August 2023 officer's column titled, Are You Being Paid at the Proper Step? Much of the work I do goes beyond running the Mutual Benefit Association, the MBA. I have many other duties for the NALC as assigned by the president. It is important to note that the NALC and the MBA are two separate and distinct entities, even though there is some crossover. Some of the other tasks I perform involve heading up the Uniform Control Committee and being a member of the Fiscal Committee, the Committee of Laws, and the Contract Administration Unit. I also chair the Complement Subcommittee, which is part of the City Delivery and Workplace Improvement Task Force. This is the subcommittee responsible for adding locations to the all-career hiring model under the Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, RE, City Delivery Staffing Adjustment, hiring part-time flexible city letter carriers. In addition, I monitor the district's city carrier assistant, CCA CAPS, and complete various other data or pay-related tasks that affect the city letter carrier craft. The focus of this article will be to help you determine if you are being paid at the correct step. For most letter carriers, it is very simple. Count the number of weeks you have been a career employee and add up the waiting periods between steps to find your correct step. However, for some, it is not that easy. Did you work as a part-time flexible PTF at Step AA? In the 2019-2023 National Agreement, a new step, Step AA, was added for PTF carriers only. The waiting period in Step AA to reach Step A is 46 weeks, if you remained a PTF. When you convert to full-time, you are to be given credit for the number of weeks you spent as a PTF and slotted into the correct step 
of the full-time pay scale. The full-time pay scale does not include Step AA. It begins at Step A. Article 9, Section 8 of the National Agreement states in relevant part, Upon conversion to full-time, part-time flexible employees in RSC Q7, Table 2, will be slotted into the full-time step commensurate with their number of weeks as a PTF and retain their time credit toward the next step. For example, if you were a PTF for 20 weeks at Step AA when you are converted to full-time, your correct pay step would now be Step A with 20 weeks credit toward Step B on the full-time pay scale. This credit is not applied only if you convert to full-time while at Step AA. For example, if you are a PTF for 102 weeks, 46 weeks at Step AA, 46 weeks at Step A, and 10 weeks at Step B when you convert to full-time, your correct pay step would be Step C with 10 weeks credit towards Step D. Did you serve as a transitional employee, TE, after September 29, 2007? The MOU-RE step credit for former transitional employees was added in the 2016-2019 National Agreement and remains in full force today. This MOU grants career letter carriers who served as a letter carrier TE after September 29, 2007, up to four additional steps dependent on their length of service as a TE. The formula used for the number of additional steps as outlined in the MOU is two years but less than three years of TE service, one step, three years but less than four years, two steps, four years but less than five years, three steps, five or more years, four steps. Former TEs can be rehired at any time, and they are to receive these additional steps once they are converted to a career city carrier if they qualify. Keep in mind that in accordance with Appendix B, 1, Non-Career Complement, 1, General Principles, Paragraph F, any TE time served after September 29, 2007 is added to a CCA's relative standing. If when this puts them over 24 months of relative standing, they are to be converted to career status in accordance with the MOU RE City Carrier Assistance Conversion to Career Status. Were you affected by the promotion pay anomaly? From 2013 to October 14, 2017, CCAs who were converted to career status into a grade 1 position and later bid to a carrier technician position, grade 2, were given an increase of two additional steps and their waiting time for their next step was started over because of the promotion rules that were in effect at that time. If these carriers bid back to a grade one position, they lose these two additional steps in accordance with section 422.225B1 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual, the ELM, which states, one, to former lower grade, the employee is assigned to the step and next step date as if service had been uninterrupted in the lower grade since the last time held. However, if these employees later bid back to a carrier technician position, they are placed back at the higher level as if they had never left. They would receive one or two of their steps back, depending on the change in their waiting period when they were originally promoted and how many weeks they served at the lower grade. This is in accordance with section 422.123A4 of the ELM, which states, when a re-promotion occurs, the employee is assigned to the step in the re-promoted grade or its equivalent with waiting period credit toward the next step date as if he or she had remained continuously in that previous held grade. If you have concerns that you are not being paid at the appropriate step, you should contact your shop steward or branch officer. 
For information regarding any of the MBA products, please call the MBA office toll-free at 800-424-5184, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., or call 202-638-4318, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You may also visit our website at nalc.org backslash MBA. Hello, this is Stephanie Stewart, your Director of Health Benefits. And for my August officer's column, it's time for preventative checkups. It's hard to believe that we have turned another page of the calendar and that we are officially seven months into 2023. Although it seems just like yesterday that we celebrated the new year, made grandiose plans and began preparing for the spring or summer months, we must acknowledge that the halfway point of the year has passed, leaving us with another closed chapter. Many of the events we carefully planned and looked forward to are gone and only memories remain. Soon the summer will conclude, children will return to their classes, vacations will end, and we will begin preparing for the start of another busy fall and holiday season. I know it's a dreaded topic, but it is reality and our calendars will quickly fill up with more items to take care of. Understandably, it does bring us slight sadness knowing time has passed so quickly, but the good news is that we still have five months of precious time before the year ends, and so much more can be accomplished. So where do you start? As your health benefit plan director, it would be remiss of me not to mention your health and the health of your family. With the school months right around the corner, I encourage you to schedule preventative checkups and to make sure that your child's overall health is in a good place. Remember that when using a PPO provider, we cover the following. Routine well-child visits, examinations and immunizations as described in the Bright Futures Guidelines provided by the American Academy of Pediatrics at 100%. For a complete list of the American Academy of Pediatrics Bright Futures Guidelines, you can go to brightfutures.aap.org. Some of the covered benefits are initial examination of a newborn child covered under a family enrollment, a well child care routine examination through age two, routine physical exam, including camp, school, and sports physicals, one annually, age three through 21, examinations done on the day of covered immunizations, age three through 21. In regard to covered immunizations for your child, you can visit the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC website, or go to nalchbp.org and click on the immunization schedules under Quick Links. But please keep in mind that the immunizations can change during the calendar year, so we provide links to the most current recommendations published by the CDC. Your family's health is a priority and our plan is a support for your journey. NALC HBP Seminar Reminder. Don't forget that the months also are closing in for the 2023 NALC Health Benefit Plan Seminar. From October 15th to 18th, the plan will be hosting our 36th seminar in Las Vegas, Nevada, and we are hoping to see you there. To register for the event, please complete the seminar registration form, which is included on our website, and submit it to the address on the bottom of the form. Please make sure to fill out all the requested information as we will need the complete details to accurately process your form. 
The NALC Health Benefit Plan room rate at the Tropicana is $149 plus $20 resort fee and tax per room per night. Keep in mind that you will need to complete this soon as the room block is filling up and the Tropicana room rate guarantee cutoff for room reservations is September 15th. For more information, please visit NALCHBP.org. 2023 Open Season Supplies Coming soon, each branch will once again receive a 2023 Open Season Supply Request Form. Please make sure to fill out this form and return it to the NALC Health Benefit Plan in the prepaid envelope by August 31st. Once this form is complete and returned to the plan, it will be entered into our system for future fulfillment. As a reminder, at this time, the 2024 benefits have not been released and our plan brochure and booklets are not currently in stock. We will continue to work closely with our union printers to receive an expedited shipment and we'll do our best to process all orders before the start of open season. However, there may be an initial delay after the form has been entered. Keep in mind that although we will make a reasonable attempt to provide the quantities requested, orders may be reduced to ensure that every branch receives the materials needed for promotion of our plan. As has been said many times, we truly appreciate your help and look forward to another successful open season. Until next month, take care. Hi, this is Michelle McQuality, Special Assistant to the President, and I'll be reading Contract Talk, found on page 36 of the August Postal Record. Street Supervision, GPS Data, and Disciplinary Action. In some areas of the country, NALC has received reports of management using data from the mobile delivery device, MDD, as a basis for disciplinary action against city carriers. The current scanning device uses Global Positioning System, GPS, data to track the movement of letter carriers while on the route. The MDD tracks movement of the device by recording what is called breadcrumb data. In addition to tracking the movement of the MDD, the device also records the amount of time the scanner is stationary. In the discipline letters, management is alleging that city carriers are failing to perform conscientiously and effectively based on reported stationary events or cumulative stationary time recorded by the MDD. Management in these locations is attempting to substitute GPS data for actual street management and observations. This month's contract talk will help explain management's responsibilities when performing street supervision and when deciding if a carrier is not satisfactorily performing their street duties. Handbook M41, City Delivery Carriers' Duties and Responsibilities, reminds city carriers that they may be supervised anytime while they are working. Section 16 of the M41 states, Carriers may expect to be supervised at all times while in performance of their daily duties. While carriers should expect to be supervised at any time, Management has certain responsibilities when performing this street supervision. These requirements are found in Section 134 of Handbook M39, Management of Delivery Services, which states in pertinent part 134.12. Accompanying carriers on the street is considered an essential responsibility of management and one of the manager's most important duties. Managers should act promptly to correct improper conditions. A positive attitude must be maintained by the manager at all times. Section 134.3 of the M39 also identifies specific circumstances that may require additional street supervision. 
Certain criteria may call attention for individual street supervision. When overtime or auxiliary assistance is used frequently on a route, foot motorized parcel post collection relay. When a manager receives substantial evidence of loitering or other actions or lack of action by one or more employees, or when it is considered to be in the interest of the service, the manager may accompany the carrier on the street to determine the cause or meet the carrier on the route and continue until such a time as a manager is satisfied. No advance notice to the carrier is required. While there is no requirement for management to notify carriers in advance, sections 134.21 and 134.22 of the M39 provide the proper approach management must use for conducting street supervision. 134.21. The manager must maintain an objective attitude in conducting street supervision and discharge this duty in an open and above-board manner. 134.22. The manager is not to spy or use other covert techniques. Any employee infractions are to be handled in accordance with the section in the current national agreement that deal with these problems. This section of the M39 requires management to use a straightforward, upfront manner and not to spy on carriers when supervising them on the street. As reported, in some places, management is attempting to use GPS data as an alternative to physical street supervision. GPS data is not always accurate and does not tell the whole story. When discussing the value of MDD GPS data, city carriers should be aware that computer systems involved record stationary time when the MDD appears to not be moving from one GPS location to another. Stationary events are recorded in USPS's Delivery Management System, DMS, or Regional Intelligent Mail Server, RIMS. There are a variety of reasons why a letter carrier and their MDD may be recorded as stationary. For example, the MDD might not register as moving if the carrier is servicing a centralized mail location or cluster box unit, CBU. Perhaps the MDD isn't moving because the carrier is picking up parcels or fueling the delivery vehicle. Electronic stationary time could be recorded while the carrier is on their break or lunch or is replenishing mail. The MDD may be inactive when the carrier is using a comfort stop to recover and hydrate from the heat. Stationary time, in and of itself, is not a violation of any handbook or manual. The absence of movement of the MDD does not mean the carrier is not working. MDD connectivity also can affect the reliability of the GPS and breadcrumb data obtained. Like a cell phone, the MDD sends and receives information, including GPS data, when connected to a cellular network. Also, like cell phones, walls, vehicle roofs, tall buildings, mountains, and other obstructions can interfere with the scanner's connection to the network. This could affect how accurately the scanner records the movement and positioning of the device. Additionally, extreme weather or inaccurate mapping and insufficient cellular service can have an impact on the accuracy of GPS and breadcrumb data. A malfunctioning or dead battery also can negatively affect how accurately the MDD communicates over the cellular network. GPS data and any associated reports must always be reviewed for errors. Any perceived time-wasting practices alleged against city carriers should be documented with actual street observation. In order for management to sustain any disciplinary action against letter carriers, it must satisfy all of the requirements related to the just cause principle contained in Article 16 of the National Agreement. Simply put, 
the just cause provision requires a fair and provable justification for discipline. The Joint Contract Administration Manual, JCAM, defines just cause into six sub-questions that arbitrators use when deciding whether to uphold disciplinary action. These questions are summarized here, and the complete explanation of just cause can be found beginning on JCAM page 16-1. Is there a rule? If so, was the employee aware of the rule? Was the employee forewarned of the disciplinary consequences for failure to follow the rule? Is the rule a reasonable rule? Management must make sure that rules are reasonable based on the overall objective of safe and efficient work performance. Management's rules should be reasonably related to business efficiency, safe operation of our business, and the performance we might expect of the employee. Is the rule consistently and equitably enforced? A rule must be applied fairly and without discrimination. Was a thorough investigation completed? Before administering the discipline, management must make an investigation to determine whether the employee committed the offense. Management must ensure that its investigation is thorough and objective. Was the severity of the discipline reasonably related to the infraction itself and in line with the usually administered, as well as to the seriousness of the employee's past record? Was the disciplinary action taken in a timely manner? Disciplinary action should be taken as promptly as possible after the offense has been committed. The fourth sub-question of just cause requires that before the decision to impose discipline is made, management must conduct a full, fair, and impartial investigation, including giving the letter carrier an opportunity to respond to the charges. It is evident that there may be many reasons why city carrier's GPS data may be unreliable or show the MDD as stationary. These stationary events may or may not be accurate. It is management's burden to prove the charges in the disciplinary action are substantiated. As communicated in this article in the JCAM, management has specific contractual and handbook responsibilities it must fulfill when assessing city carrier performance, effectiveness, and efficiency. As always, if a carrier has been issued a disciplinary action letter, the carrier should provide a copy of it to their steward immediately. The steward can then investigate to determine if management has satisfied its obligations when issuing the discipline. On page 39 is the staff report of Assistant to the President for Community Services, Christina Vela-Davidson, read by Mike Shea. Updates. Below are additions and corrections to the 2023 Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive numbers published in the July postal record. The national total now stands at 43,251,251 pounds, up from 42,033,910 pounds reported last issue. Veterans. October will be here before you know it, and I will have to turn in the names of members of the NLC Veterans Group to the postal record. If you have not joined the NLC Veterans Group and you are a veteran, please do so, so you can be recognized in the November postal record. You can sign up online at nlc.org slash join hyphen veterans or complete the sign-up card on page 9 of this issue of the postal record and mail it in. You also can go on the NELC website to download the card. Once you've done that, simply print it out, complete it, and mail it in. On page 40 is the MDA report by Christina Vela-Davidson, read by Mike Shea. Getting back on track. As stated on the Muscular Dystrophy Association MDA website, the freedom to walk, to talk, to run and play, to laugh, to hug, to eat, even breathe, Each day, these freedoms are taken away from kids and adults with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and related diseases that weaken muscle strength and limit mobility. Together, we can change that. 
Branches that have donated time and effort toward this goal deserve special mention for what they've done. For many years, we held the distinct honor of being the top-performing national sponsor for MDA. My goal is for NELC to one day again be among the very top contributors MDA relies on until a cure is found. I know we can do it. With all that is happening with the national economy, you are doing a fantastic job, and I can only ask that you keep up the good work. Since the COVID-19 pandemic ended, we have been increasing our contributions to MDA and making our way close to the million dollar per year mark. I believe we will get there once again. A can-do attitude goes a long way with community service. Keep up the great work. We are on our way to another awesome year for MDA. I give all the credit to you all. Correction. The 2022 MDA Honor Roll, which appeared in the April issue of the Postal Record, mistakenly included in the headquarters total $6,320 raised by Willingsboro, New Jersey, Branch 5801 at the branch sales during the Chicago Convention. Just a reminder, if you want any of your branch events to be shared, please send them to mda at nelc.org or social at nelc.org to be posted on social media. Remember to send copies of all items to MDA so we can properly give your branch the correct credit for the 2023 year.